0: Welcome to episode 13 of History Stories for My Son, the podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. As always, I'll ask that if you like this podcast and would like it to continue, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with your friends. Regular listeners will note that it's been a while, I think the longest gap between episodes since I started this podcast The reason is that, like almost everyone, I've been affected by the coronavirus. I've been working from home, as has my wife, and we're both trying to take care of our school aged son uh, while keeping up with our full-time job, so suffice it to say the amount of time I have for side projects like this one is at an all-time low, but uh, I am still dedicated to the podcast. Uh, It will continue for the foreseeable future. But it may continue on an irregular schedule, at least until I have more time to devote to it. Because the coronavirus is affecting everyone, I'm going to depart from my usual format of individual biography and uh, tell a different type of story, a story about the closest historical parallel to what's happening in the world right now. This week, I will tell you the story of the Spanish Flu. The Spanish Flu was by far the deadliest pandemic in modern times. I'm in no way diminishing the seriousness of what we're currently going through when I note that the Spanish flu killed at least an order of magnitude, more than ten times as many people as the coronavirus is going to. Uh, How many? Uh, We don't know exactly because the Spanish flu took place in the middle of the First World War, during a time when medical record-keeping in many parts of the world was not very good. But estimates by historians range from 17 million at the low end to 100 million at the high end. Uh, Most commonly, the consensus or the median figure is somewhere in the middle, around 50 million. And it's worth noting that the Spanish flu struck a world with about a quarter of our present population, which means that it was even worse in relative terms. The median estimate is that about 3% of the world's population, that's three out of every hundred human beings on the planet, died of the Spanish flu. So where did this flu come from? You might think judging by the name, that it came from Spain. That would be a reasonable enough assumption, but it turns out an incorrect one. It was called the Spanish flu because at the time the flu hit, the world was at war, and wartime censors and all of the participating countries suppressed news of the flu because they thought it would be bad for morale bad for mobilization of their armies. And uh, so it was Spain, which was neutral, that was one of the first places where the Spanish flu was reported on, uh, especially because the king of Spain himself caught the Spanish flu and became very ill with it, though we ultimately recovered. It became a huge news story in Spain, and Spain was reporting accurately on it. Uh, which made it seem like Spain was uh, an epicenter, uh, even though it wasn't particularly. So where did the Spanish flu come from? There are three major theories. One is that it came from France. There was a major UK staging area and hospital in France, where the British, since they're sick, they're wounded, and where some of their healthy troops prepared themselves before moving forward to the front. So you had sort of a line of, of sick and injured troops heading in one direction, a line of healthy troops uh, heading in the other direction, all crammed in under very crowded conditions, uh, and There was a piggery there where they kept pigs. They brought poultry in from the surrounding countryside. And so uh, one theory is that it jumped from animals, probably the pigs, to the people, uh, mixed in with this churning, concentrated population of sick soldiers uh, going in one direction, well soldiers going in the other. Uh, and that that's what led to the sudden explosion from there. So that's one theory. Uh, another theory is that it uh, emerged in China, and this theory is supported by the fact that uh, in 1918, there was an unusually low death rate from the Spanish flu in China compared to most parts of the world, uh, which could suggest that it had actually been in China for a while, such that the Chinese population, or significant proportion of the Chinese population, had already developed an immunity. Uh, and indeed, there's records from China that show that an illness that sounds an awful lot like the Spanish flu struck the population in 1917, a year before the global Spanish flu pandemic, People who subscribe to this theory point out that about 100,000 Chinese laborers were mobilized to work behind British lines. And so their theory is that the Chinese brought it to France, then it got into the uh, uh, the British lines uh, and spread from there. And there's even a third theory, that it came from the United States. One of the early outbreaks was in Haskell County, Kansas, and a soldier from that area then infected an army camp, Fort Riley, in Kansas, uh, which led to the first widespread outbreak in the United States. Uh, And there's a combination of that theory, Chinese theory, some speculated that it was when Chinese laborers were being shipped across North America on their way to Europe that it got out, mutated in America, and then moved on. We don't really know which of these theories is accurate. Uh, this was long enough ago that uh, it's impossible to know for sure. Uh, what we do know is that once it started to spread, it spread rapidly. Uh, it spread particularly in the World War I trench conditions, like most flus like most viruses this was an airborne disease spread by coughing sneezing uh, and as you can imagine troops packed like sardines in trenches is about an as ideal a place for a flu to spread as you can possibly imagine transport ships are even worse I and mean, we've heard a lot about cruise ships you know magnify that ten times, and you're talking about the conditions in packed troop transport. Army bases themselves were uh, packed to the gills at this time uh, since everyone was a staging area for troops heading off to war. uh, They were packed way beyond their usual capacity. Uh, Most bases were actually so packed that they couldn't fit all the troops in the barracks and were setting up temporary uh, tents, or if they had troops in the barracks, uh, the the troops were doubling or tripling up in terms of uh, the amount of space that they had available. So, worst possible conditions to contain the spread of a virus. And of course, once it started circulating among soldiers, uh, it passed quickly to civilians because soldiers were returning from the front, moving through the country. Um, moving through the country both to and from the war. Uh, There's a couple of documented incidents in the United States uh, where troop trains were moving across the countryside. Um, There's one particular incident where a troop went almost a thousand miles uh, from the Midwest to the coast, uh, passing through numerous small hamlets along the way, Uh, local townspeople would come out to greet the troops, the troops would come out to stretch their legs at the stop, Um, maybe there would be a little speech from a local dignitary, maybe some of the townspeople would hug the troops, shake their hand, and sure enough, every little town along the way then had an outbreak, one after the other. At least one case by the time a, a troop transport got to the end, something like 70% of the soldiers on the train uh, had uh, been infected with the Spanish flu, uh, and they passed that along to almost everyone they came in contact with along the way. Now, the Spanish flu came in a couple of waves. The first wave in early 2018 wasn't that much worse than a normal bad flu season. But then a second wave hit in the fall of 2018, which was much deadlier, uh, and which unusually proved to be very deadly to people in the prime of their lives. And so one of the historical mysteries around this is why. Uh, why was the second wave So much deadlier. And the best theory that I was able to come across, which seems to be the consensus among most who have studied this, is that it was again the wartime conditions, uh, that changed the normal pattern of virus development. Normally, viruses become less virulent over time because it's actually not good for a virus to kill people quickly. Uh, or at all, really, a, a virus survives by rec- replicating, which means the viruses that uh, last the longest tend to be the ones that make someone sick enough that they're coughing and sneezing, uh, but doesn't actually kill them and doesn't actually debilitate them to the point where uh, they're not going about their daily life. Uh, and so normally the way natural selection works on a virus is that people who are very ill stay at home, not spreading the virus, uh, and fortunately often dying. Um, and those who are mildly ill continue on with their lives, uh, spreading a comparatively mild strain. Uh, and so eventually uh, the mild strain crowds out, uh, the a more deadly strain, which dies out as its victims die out. But uh, in the trenches, natural selection was actually reversed. Soldiers with a mild strain stayed where they were, while the severely ill were sent on crowded trains to crowded field hospitals, spreading the deadlier virus. Artificially, the people who were most sick were the ones who were being moved around, where other people were exposed to it which meant that almost uniquely sort of with each passing month uh the deadlier and the deadlier deadlier and deadlier strains were preferentially selected for until when uh, fall came around and the conditions were ready for the flu to start spreading rapidly again uh the version that started spreading rapidly then was much worse than the original and as it spread, it was absolutely devastating because in addition to those raw numbers I'm talking about, it's it hit people in the prime of their lives particularly hard. Most flus, most viruses tend to disproportionately affect the very old and sometimes the very young. But this Spanish flu caused an extreme immune reaction in people, such that people with very strong immune systems would die oftentimes because it was their immune system overreacting that killed them rather than the virus itself. And so having a young adult, healthy immune system was actually a disadvantage in this one. Uh, Whereas elderly people with Less strong immune responses actually tended to survive because their immune system didn't have that same extreme reaction. May have also been impacted by a strain of the flu that hit in the late 19th century uh, that uh, some of the elderly may have already been exposed to, which may have been close enough to the Spanish flu to give some immunity. But whatever the reason, we're talking young adults, parents of small children, were the people who were being hit hardest. And so it was devastating. These are the people who do the work of the community. Uh, these are the people who take care of the children. Uh, it created untold numbers of orphans. Probably one of the most tragic effects was... Uh, a lot of child neglect that took place as parents died or became too sick to care for their children, and other people uh, were too afraid to go close to those children. Uh, and it caused a, a huge crisis uh, in in healthcare. There weren't enough people. There weren't enough healthcare workers to care for everyone who was sick. Partially because prime age healthcare workers were getting sick. Partially because a lot of healthcare workers had been shipped off to war to tend to the needs of uh, soldiers. And so there were probably a lot of people who died not only of the Spanish flu, but of other things who wouldn't have died if not for the fact that there just weren't enough healthcare workers to take care of everyone. So, what was the government response to all of this? Well, as we've hinted earlier, the the government response was probably the worst possible in that they uh, lied about it. Uh, Pretty much all of the governments involved in the war, on both sides, uh, suppressed news of the pandemic, uh, pretended that it wasn't happening, uh, instructed reporters not to report on it, and dismissed it uh, as something to be worried about. The reason is that they were in the middle of the biggest war in human history up until that point, and they were afraid that a pandemic would scare people into not fighting the war, not producing materials for the war. Uh, So they really made a decision that they were willing to suffer a certain percentage of widespread deaths in order not to interrupt the war effort. And so, not only were there no national-level efforts to suppress the virus, uh, government policy was actually spreading the virus as quickly as possible uh, by moving millions of prime-age carriers uh, around, uh, young soldiers and laborers and support personnel, to and from the the front. So... uh, It was kind of a worst-case scenario on the policy side. Not only were the governments not stopping it, they were doing the opposite. There were some localized efforts, which may sound quite familiar to those of you living through the coronavirus response right now, which is everyone. There were some localities, for instance, some cities in America that uh, imposed what we would now call social distancing measures, that closed schools churches uh, that discouraged people from going out that insisted that people wear masks in public uh, that sort of thing uh, canceled large events and there's at least some evidence that at least locally these efforts had some positive effects on reducing mortality um, there's a useful comparison between Philadelphia and St. Louis. Philadelphia went forward with a major parade at the the height of the outbreak. St. Louis uh, canceled a parade around the same time. Uh, Philly didn't impose any measures, at least not until pretty late in the game. Uh, St. Louis imposed all the sorts of measures that we're now familiar with. And uh, in result, St. Louis had a lot fewer deaths, including a lot fewer per capita, than Philadelphia. Now, this may not be an entirely fair comparison, because where Philadelphia is geographically, a lot more soldiers coming back from the front would have passed through Philly than St. Louis, and so it likely would have had a higher death toll regardless. Uh, but there does seem to be at least some evidence that cities in America that implemented measures to curb the spread of the virus had a somewhat lower mortality rates on average than places that did not. So what are the lessons that we can learn from the Spanish flu? And perhaps apply today. Well, One is that uh, government censorship is bad, uh, and that lying to the population about what's happening is uh, almost certain to make things worse. It happened in the Spanish flu, led to delayed responses, lost opportunities to suppress the early areas of, of outbreak and prevent it from spreading further. Um, unfortunately, there seems to be some parallel to that today. It seems that at least for the first few months that uh, coronavirus was spreading around China, information about that was prevented by censorship from going out to the wider world, and that that prevented uh, measures to prevent the current virus from spreading. So, unfortunately, that seems to be an area where we fail to learn from history, and, and history repeated itself. Uh, A second lesson is that local measures can make a difference, that uh, communities can lower the death rate by encouraging their people to avoid spreading the disease. Uh, And that lesson seems to have been taken to heart as we're seeing widespread efforts to discourage the spread of the disease today. How effective those measures will be is yet to be determined. Probably impossible to say while we're still in the middle of it, but at least that suggests that the lessons of history are being considered by some. Another lesson is that uh, second waves can happen. Um, Viruses often die down during the summer and come back in the fall, uh, that's happened in the Spanish flu. It could happen in the case of the coronavirus, and we should be prepared for that. However, I don't want to be alarmist here because the conditions that led to the much deadlier second wave of the Spanish flu uh, don't exist for the coronavirus. We're not at war. we don't have the unusual preferential spread of the most deadly strains of the disease. Uh, and it appears that coronavirus mutates much more slowly than the flu. This is way outside my expertise, but if you're interested in the science, there is a fascinating article on lifescience.com right now uh, about the slower mutation rate of the coronavirus, which is great news because it also means that once they do have a vaccination, it's likely to work a lot longer than the uh, seasonal flu vaccinations where they have to change it every year to catch up with mutations. Coronavirus is probably going to be more like uh, other types of vaccinations you get where you get it once, maybe you get a booster five, ten years later, but it's not something you need every year. But I'd like to end on a more hopeful note. Because I think the most important historical lesson of the Spanish flu is that this too shall pass after that lethal second wave struck in late 1918 cases dropped abruptly and dramatically in Philadelphia for example which was one of the epicenters uh, almost 5,000 people died on October 16th but by November 11th flu had almost disappeared from the city some fatal cases continuing into March, but, uh, but really by mid 1919, it was gone. And this is not unusual. All historical pandemics seem to follow a natural progression where they spread rapidly with death toll increasing up to a peak, uh, followed by a decline that's usually pretty rapid. And oftentimes the decline is rapid due to a combination of mutation to a less violent strain, since again, it's better for the virus if they aren't actually killing their hosts, Um, and also immunity from survivors. We've heard a lot about herd immunity. Uh, Almost all uh, illnesses that you survive, you gain an immunity to, and one of the reasons why the drop-off of the Spanish flu may have been so dramatic is because it did spread so quickly and uh, pretty much killed everyone it was going to kill and infected almost everyone else so that those who survived were largely immune and uh, it couldn't spread any further. It was kind of like a fire burning out because it burned out the forest. Not the ideal way perhaps to stop a virus, but that is nature's of natural prevention of a pandemic going on forever. And despite killing far more people than the coronavirus is likely to, including vast numbers of people in the prime of their lives, the Spanish flu came to an end. It was not the end of the world. Society moved on. People got back to work. 1920s. It's called the Roaring Twenties. It was, at least in the United States, among the most productive, prosperous, and to most accounts, fun decades in U.S. history. One of the reasons I started this podcast is because I really think for all of the bad things that happen in history, the overriding lesson of history is one of hope. We humans have been through a lot, and we've always pulled through in the end. Almost any time someone says that this or that is an unprecedented crisis or that things have never been worse, they're wrong. Almost always. Humans, time and again, have proven their genius to adapt, overcome, and survive even the most awful historical events. We will overcome this, too.